Hey, this is Nick Walters again with the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest. And this particular webinar that we did earlier this year is with our very own Roger Ford. And you're in for a treat because so many people like to think about the industrial uses of hemp in textiles or to think about it in, in different uh, fiber uses or in wood or in building materials. Roger really focuses in on the value of hemp in biofuels and sustainable renewable energy. He's an absolute expert in this. We're so glad that he is a part of our one of our founding members of the co-op. You're really going to get a lot of insight. If you had no idea about hemp's usage uh, in, in renewable energy, this is the episode you're going to want to listen to. Good afternoon, everybody. This is our weekly webinar Wednesday. My name is Roger Ford, as most of you know. Uh, I am president of Eureka Energy Corporation, and I'm also a founding partner of the National Hemp Growers Cooperative. I appreciate everybody being with us today. Um, I'm going to go ahead here and let's see if I can pull up the share screen on this and, uh, and we'll go ahead and get started. Um, and I do have a PDF of this presentation, and this is actually a presentation that uh, I shared uh, with the uh, Hemp Expo out in Colorado last week. Uh, and uh, and want to talk a little bit about different things related to the potential for, uh, as you can see there, a future for hemp-based energy. Now, hemp-based energy can take uh, many forms, uh, it can take uh, the form of uh, a, a solid fuel or a liquid fuel or a gaseous uh, fuel. Uh, but there are some questions that we need to ask ourselves prior to uh, conversion of hemp to energy uh, feedstock or energy off offtake. Uh, and one of those questions is, will hemp meet the supply requirements and is it a cost-effective input uh, as a as a bio biomass feedstock, uh, and so looking at uh, the potential for that, uh, hemp has some great uh, some great attributes. Uh, the first of those being it has a very high productivity rate per acre, meaning that we get a lot of bulk biomass per acre, and in that. Uh, we get a high gross calorific value in comparison to uh, wood uh, being a, a, a feedstock, thinking of pine or wood waste, uh, those, those sorts of things. Uh, per acre, we get a high, high calorific or high energy value in comparison to wood. And we'll compare also some other agricultural crops uh, going forward. Uh, I will remind you, if you do have a question uh, going, uh, as, as we go through the slide, and I can't see the, the, the question comment or the chat uh, comment right now, but go ahead and, and pose those questions, and at the end, we will uh, I will go back and we'll answer any questions that you might have. So if you think of anything going forward, just uh, pose those questions, and we'll, we'll catch those at the end. So in some cases, we see a yield of green biomass or green hemp per acre of approximately 24 tons per hectare, a hectare being 2.47, about two and a half acres 
per hectare. Um, that corresponds to roughly about 11 tons of dry hemp per hectare. Uh, and all that's achievable within a minimum of 120 day growing period from planting to harvest. And that, as you can see, is a source that based on some research from uh, 2013. Uh, and that there is beginning to be more and more of this research available out there that makes a great case for the potential uh, uh, of hemp to be a, a, an input based on its uh, yield per acre and the cost input of, of doing that. Other research uh, that, that we see with hemp uh, capable of high yields of biomass uh, at a range of anywhere from 10 to 15, uh, as I said, 24 tons per hectare, that is three times the yield of a cereal straw in a very uh, fast maturation period. Uh, in this research up to 180 days. So in a period of between 120 to 180 days, we see uh, yields per acre or per hectare, uh, three times that of cereal straw, and that being, for example, wheat straw. Uh, other attributes uh, that, that makes hemp an ideal uh, biomass energy feedstock is the fact that its taproot system provides good aeration uh, optimal air and water conditions uh, as, a, as a crop growing. It has excellent properties for soil conditioning, so you don't have to worry about uh, depletion of nutrients in the soil at, because in, in some cases you can cut that back in uh, as a soil amendment, thinking of biochar and those other types of things. Uh, and further processing to produce the char uh, makes this an excellent soil amendment. Uh, and we're seeing, and we actually saw last week, companies that are actually producing biochar to blend that back into agricultural land uh, to, to condition the soil and to improve crop yields per acre. And it is cheaper to produce by comparison with other crops because of its inputs that are reduced. So thinking of things like herbicides, uh, you don't want to be put, putting the vast majority of herbicide, thinking of Roundup and these types of things that's traditionally used in the growing of uh, corn or soybean to control the weeds because uh, hemp is a weed itself and that uh, herbicide will actually kill the plant. So there's some inputs that we traditionally do in farming uh, and in growing crop that necessarily would not be applicable to, uh, to hemp. And so uh, herbicides being one of those key, key components of that. So it is a cheaper crop in comparison to grow, in comparison to corn or soybean, uh, and, and easier to grow in, in terms of comparison to, to energy, dedicated energy crops such as energy beets or, uh, or even miscanthus or switchgrass. These are cellulosic. Uh, types of material, uh, and again, comparing it with uh, wood, uh, which is a uh, right now a preferred cellulosic uh, feedstock. Uh, uh, it is obviously faster to grow than a tree, right? You don't have to plant a tree and wait uh, a decade or longer to harvest it. Obviously, we're turning around in a matter of days what would take a tree uh, years uh, to grow. 
And so the the attributes uh, is hemp uh, a viable feedstock in terms of its supply and cost effectiveness. Well, we could check that box and say yes, that would be uh, a, a, a yes for hemp in comparison to other crops. Another question that we need to ask ourselves, is there enough hemp uh, that, uh, that we could create a reliable supply chain? And so, uh, yes, there is enough land available to create that sufficient supply. Uh, in terms of existing agricultural land, uh, but also in terms of considering uh, land currently that is laid fallow or that is not being farmed uh, currently under programs such as the Conservation Reserve Program in which nationwide has approximately 34 million acres of, of agricultural land that is currently uh, not being farmed in any way. And that, that total area is equal to about 7% of current U.S. cropland, an area bigger than the state of New York that's currently uh, available potentially for growing of a crop such as hemp for bioenergy, uh, but that the federal government is paying farmers to not grow it for whatever reason. Now, some of this land falls under the definition of wetlands and wetlands preservation. But I think this is a federal program, as you can see, that costs taxpayers up to $2 billion or over $2 billion a year uh, to maintain, uh, to basically to pay farmers and landowners uh, to make their land unproductive. And so what we would propose is a review of this program and other programs uh, to see how much of this land potentially across the country could be used to grow hemp as a input for bioenergy uh, feedstock and thus save the taxpayer money and at the same time create greater profitability for the farmer. Uh, going forward, and so uh, that that's obviously uh, a, a great addition to existing cropland is to consider these millions and millions of acres that currently is not being cultivated, and look at dedicating a large share of this land uh, to produce a feedstock from uh, hemp uh, for energy production or other uses for hemp, but definitely for energy production. It, it helps us build a great supply chain and a, and a requisite amount of hemp that we can convert to bioenergy. So that's a check mark. Yes, we do have enough land that creates a, a supply chain viable enough to produce large volumes of bioenergy in whatever form that would take. And so that's another check mark. Another question we uh, then ask ourselves, uh, what is potentially a energy product that could be produced from the hemp crop that we're going to grow? And one of those is, is hemp viable as a pelletized or a briquetted fuel product? And here's an example, just a, a slide that shows you what a hemp pellet would look like uh, potentially. And is there enough value in the energy of the plant 
Uh, and here's a sample that we took uh, a few years ago in a three-year study that we were conducting uh, with using hemp to blend with coal. And so on a, on a received basis, and we did not um, grind it down, just taking it out of the field and bringing it, bringing it to a, a processing facility that we were then uh, processing and blending that with coal, we had a moisture level of about 13%. Now, on a dry basis, that, that number is going to go down. Uh, this is a key, key piece right here in terms of the percentage of ash uh, per ton. And as you can see, this is less than 1% while its volatility, which is always a good thing, uh, is up to almost 84%. It's fixed carbon uh, up to 16%. And it's BTU value, and this is a very important thing, especially in power generation or creating a pellet. Uh, and thinking of this, this is not a carbonized pellet that we were testing. This is a raw uh, hemp pellet that, that was processed from, from the hemp herd uh, and pelletized into ba basically the what I showed you there in the slide, uh, and its BTU value was up to 9,500. Now, thinking of a ton of bituminous or, or thermal coal used for power generation, that can range anywhere from 10,000 up to 12,500, 13,000. Uh, obviously, the better BTU, the, the better off you are per ton. Uh, but the 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 hemp pellet performed very, very satisfactorily in the fact that it could uh, be blended at a certain percentage with a ton of coal, and uh, we did not use a lot of BTU value. And another key component of this is obviously the percentage of sulfur in the, uh, in the hemp. Uh, and what we found is that blending uh, at about a 50-50 ratio with the uh, with the Illinois Basin coal samples that we were using, uh, we were seeing a reduction of a substantial amount based on the fact that the hemp pellet itself uh, has a less than 1% uh, uh, sulfur content. And so thinking of the emissions, thinking of acid rain and the need for scrubbers and power plants, this greatly reduces the amount of sulfur when you blend this with coal. So, uh, yeah, we, we found that hemp is a very, very uh, uh, good potential pellet blending fuel. So much so when we compare, and this is megajoule, and a megajoule uh, is hundreds of thousands of potential BTUs uh, that, that you would find in a, in a ton of, uh, of, of hemp. And so when we were comparing and looking at uh, the hemp itself, and we found this research uh, dating back to 2012, uh, here you have wood chip uh, at, a, at a megajoule per, per kilogram around 17. Hemp, 18.8. Its next nearest competitor is wheat straw at 18.7. Corn, miscanthus, and that. NAF rapeseed uh, straw, which is a very dominant uh, feedstock in Europe, uh, all lag behind the, the hemp plant itself in terms of the potential for heat energy coming out of that uh, plant. And so the potential for heat generation from a ton of hemp, obviously going forward, I think in terms of the solid pellet fuel, 
uh, is very good. Uh, and so that's another check mark, in my opinion, is that the potential as a pellet fuel, if nothing else, uh, makes hemp a very viable input uh, for a pellet or a briquetted carbonized uh, solid fuel. And so then you have to consider, and this is where our company is most interested, is hemp viable as a feedstock for renewable natural gas production. And understanding that renewable natural gas is simply methane gas that is derived from a renewable source. And that source is, uh, is biomass. And so that falls into several categories. Landfill gas, uh, captured uh, landfill gas coming out of a landfill is a, uh, a very dominant uh, feedstock right now uh, that falls under this term RNG. But RNG can be many things as long as it is derived from a biomass uh, material whether that is an animal material, say manure or animal carcasses or that sort of thing, or a dedicated, uh, a dedicated biomass feedstock such as hemp, the potential we have to consider then is uh, how much uh, methane or RNG could be captured off of a, uh, off of a, uh, a feedstock from hemp. And so looking at that methane energy yield per hectare, and understanding again, hectare is 2.47 acres, about two and a half acres. The potential energy yield of methane per hectare is around 136 gigajoules. So this is more than a megajoule. So a gigajoule, thinking of a gigabyte of you know, memory in a computer is thousands of times more than a megabyte of memory storage. So in that same comparison, uh, you get a lot of energy. Uh, and in terms of converting a gigajoule to uh, a BTU, uh, one gigajoule is nearly a million BTUs. So one gigajoule. Uh, is uh, is millions of BTUs when you start adding all that up. And so in comparison to the total energy in the hemp crop of that same period, uh, and this was done through an anaerobic digestion process, uh, we get approximately 286 gigajoules per hectare. So the gross energy yield per hectare for methane was higher than the reference values in this research study uh, for ethanol from wheat grain or biodiesel derived from rapeseed. Uh, so in both of these, this is a European study. So both of these are the predominant feedstock for ethanol and biodiesel bio in Europe. And so in comparison, uh, the researchers found that the, the gross value for energy value for hemp per hectare uh, to produce that methane was greater than the reference values for either uh, ethanol or biodiesel and uh, in, in, in its use of that particular feedstock. And so here we find uh, just a, a chart that, that goes back and so a, a cubic meter uh, per ton of volatile solids, so the methane yield for crop. And so you can see there, obviously the wheat grain, uh, uh, the wheat straw, uh, obviously is a, a very good. But hemp is right there. It is it's very comparable. 
And when you compare that to things like sorghum or sugar beet or the whole corn crop or miscanthus, obviously uh, the, the methane yield of hemp is very, very good. And so this is uh, indicative for us as a company uh, that what we have here potentially as using the hemp crop itself for the uh, for the input, along with some other potential biomass, crop residual waste, animal waste, those types of things, that we we have an excellent uh, candidate in hemp as a feedstock uh, to produce uh, large amounts of methane per ton. And so that again checks the box. So is there a future for hemp-based energy? Uh, I would suggest yes. That, that we do have a, a, a great potential for the use of the hemp plant. Um, and how do we get there? So we have to look at past to energy markets and how that is. And so the past to energy markets uh, understand that we have to have available land to plant and to expand uh, that, 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 that land. Uh, I think that, yes, we have that. We have a cost-effective uh, way to grow hemp as a cash crop. That benefits the farmer. Uh, we obviously have shown that there are multiple revenue streams that can be derived. That's either as a pellet fuel or a gas fuel, and we'll we'll move on to the discussion of a liquid fuel uh, potentially. And so there's versatility that appears very favorable uh, for hemp, and that we can, uh, depending on market conditions, produce multiple types of energy products uh, with with fairly uh, uh, easy flexibility uh, in terms of what the market demands. So maybe it demands a pellet or, or a briquetted or a carbon, carbon pellet fuel, or does it require us to produce a, a renewable natural gas, or do we take that gas and convert that gas to a liquid fuel? So the flexibility, again, provides us paths uh, along with the uh, cost effectiveness and the availability of the land to do that. And so then favorable bioenergy products, raw or carbonized pellets or briquettes, blend, so that gives you flexibility to blend either for coal or coal-fired power generation and blending that off or for, as 100% input for a biopower uh, generation or even for the home heating market for think, pellet stoves, thinking of that. So that that's a in some segments of the country, a growing uh, growing demand. Uh, and personally, I know several people that have pellet stoves that function much like a central heating system in a home, and they buy tons of pellets every fall and, and burn those in their home. So the home heating market uh, for pellet stoves is also a potential market. Or you could use it as an input for gasification to produce RNG, which then again, you could blend with coal, or you could blend with natural gas, uh, or you could blend with uh, you know other other types of things to create a CNG or a compressed natural gas or a liquid natural gas uh, for power generation or to run vehicles on. That's that's in some parts of the country a big thing. We see some of this in terms of school buses, public transportation, fleet vehicles. Thinking of uh, companies like a UPS or a Swans. Uh, delivery service, those types of things, they are running on propane and natural gas that is compressed in tanks. And so these are options. Or there's also the option to convert that gas 
uh, to a bio crude, to a diesel, or to even a jet fuel uh, potential. And so these, again, are favorable market conditions. So just a brief discussion about the Eureka energy model and what we're hoping to do. Uh, we are partnering, obviously, with the National Hemp Growers Cooperative to create a path for hemp to fuel or hemp to energy. Uh, and the key part of that, obviously, is the supply chain, obviously, to create a reliable, long-term, sustainable supply that enables us to, to both produce and to expand uh, our operation. So what we would look at is a construct of regional facilities to process that hemp to renewable gas, undertake uh, the certification of hemp as a feedstock for bioenergy production. So we qualify this for RENS credits, for carbon credits, and the, these, these types of uh, tax credits and incentives that only adds value and profitability uh, to, to the project and to the company. And so uh, that, that is a key piece of this going forward is, is we will work to certify this as a feedstock. Uh, and the first of these endeavors uh, is the focus on a, a, a entity in the state of Mississippi. And so we are uh, we have formed with the National Hemp Growers Cooperative, the Mississippi Biodevelopment LLC. This is a first advanced bioenergy facility where we will produce renewable gas, renewable transportation fuel, a, a renewable uh, gas uh, to electricity potentially, all of which will be derived in whole or in part from hemp. Uh, and so that's our goal, and that's that's the, one of the main things that we're working on as a company right now with the National Hemp Growers Cooperative is to uh, build this first in the country facility uh, and and in a partnership with the National Hemp Growers Co-op. And so what might this look like? This, this artist rendering here shows uh, a facility that has a small footprint of around 15 to 20 acres. Uh, it has no moving parts. It's very self-sustaining. It is a low consumer of water, and it actually recycles uh, water. As you can tell, there are no uh, smokestacks, no uh, towers to emit any kind of toxic emissions. And therefore, it's very, very environmentally friendly. It's uh, an odorless facility. It's adaptable to multiple feedstocks. Uh, its flexibility in terms of flow uh, can handle anywhere from 300 to 7,000 tons of biomass a day. Uh, so thinking of operating this on basically 24-7, we can process anywhere from 300 tons to 7,000 tons. So its scalability, flexibility uh, is is very, very good. Uh, and of course, what we describe this is a distributive model that's in proximity to an available feedstock, say within a 75 to 100 mile radius of one of these facilities. And so our goal would be to produce multiples of these that would bring hemp to this facility and create a renewable gas and remove and then move that gas uh, through existing pipeline in order to take it to market to a liquid fuel, basically, refinery. Uh, and so what we would take is a, 
uh, is the gas and aggregate the gas through existing pipeline to a larger facility that would be located in Mississippi uh, and take that through a modified Fisher Tropes catalyst process. So as you can see here, for every 1 million standard cubic feet of gas, we're processing that gas through a Fisher Tropes reactor and product separation uh, to create a synthetic oil, or we can create a uh, or a create a biodiesel and and a couple of byproducts, all of which are marketable, or we can create jet fuel. And so this is a this is a photograph of a hundred barrel a day facility. And so for every million uh, standard cubic feet of RNG, we can produce approximately a hundred barrels a day. Uh, of, of a synthesis crude or of a set of uh, direct uh, biofuel products such as biodiesel or biojet fuel uh, and, mar and other marketable uh, bioenergy bio products. And so this here gives you a representation based off this technology of the, of the types of things that we can produce. We can produce diesel uh, that's very, very low in sulfur, near zero. Uh, so you have reduced local emissions. It's blendable up to 100%. It uh, provides engine durability for, for the engines that run it. It meets existing ASTM standards. There are no byproducts. It has a high cetane index of around greater or equal to 70. There you see that. Uh, or we could produce a jet fuel. Uh, it's a synthetic paraffinic kerosene, thinking of kerosene, basically jet fuel, a very high energy density by weight. Uh, it is blendable with uh, petroleum-based jet fuel up to 50%, has a very low uh, level of impurity, which makes it very clean burning. And there are projects already underway uh, with other companies that have been in the news, uh, specifically with Delta Airlines, in which they have committed uh, to purchase up to 80, over 80 million gallons of jet fuel uh, made from biomass to blend with their uh, uh, feedstock, basically, in, I think, in Tacoma, uh, Washington, maybe Seattle, uh, up in the uh, Northwest. And so they are they're, they are making the move and the commitment uh, to use a bio-based uh, jet fuel in their operation. Uh, we can also potentially produce a drop-in gasoline or a blendable feedstock. It's, very, it's an excellent steam cracker feed. Uh, it meets uh, even the Canadian crude diluting uh, solvent requirements. It is an ethanol denaturant, or it can also be processed into other different types of solids. So the potential there for a liquid fuel market for us uh, is there, and there, there are things that we're working on right now that we can announce, but basically that will enable us uh, to get a project finance based off of uh, some of the uh, work that we're doing right now to get uh, viable offtake agreements for this. And so at this time, uh, I'm, I'm going to open this up for any questions that we might have, uh, and I don't see any, uh, but uh, we'll give you a second there. If you want to, uh, if you want to ask a question, uh, feel free to do that uh, at this or any time. Uh, Roger, how well, okay, we've got a question from Michael. How well was your concept for the biomass to energy facility received at the NOCO Expo? We received a lot of feedback immediately after our uh, my session 
uh, on that, Michael, and uh, actually have had several follow-up emails and conversations with 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 folks all from different parts of the country. And actually, uh, I have to respond back to a couple of emails from some attendees that were there attending virtually uh, in South America. So the uh, the the idea was very well received as far as the conference itself. Okay, we have another question. But are we considering any novel fundraising approaches for the biomass to RNG facilities such as Hempitecture uh, is launching a we, a we fund, I guess a we funder. Yeah, so, so those crowdfunding concepts are uh, a potential for us. So what we're working on right now as a company and on this specific project is we're developing uh, the pro forma. We're waiting on uh, some uh, some numbers from uh, one of our potential off takers uh, in this and hoping to get an agreement. So once we're able to do that, uh, we're going to get with the our financial advisor or CFO and with the um, uh, the attorneys to help us make sure that we structure these uh, these offerings, investment opportunities in the proper way. And so that is one way that we might explore uh, uh, is a crowdfunding opportunity, which a lot of companies are doing, and that allows small investors uh, to, to invest. And so, yes, that potentially. Uh, but the beauty of this and the way we are hoping to move this forward with the National Hemp Growers Co-op as a company, obviously, is looking at how do we uh, bring the member farmer in, into this uh, profitability. And so making the cooperative a invested member uh, in, in a project going forward and in multiple projects will enable the cooperative to derive revenue, you know, dividend revenue or whatever, whatever how you want to refer to it as, uh, in these projects. And so ultimately that money flows back to the member farmer uh, of the co-op. And so that helps the farmer add value. So not only is the farmer growing and profiting from their growing activities, is that there will be, by virtue of these uh, partnerships uh, going forward in projects uh, such as what we're structuring in Mississippi, uh, we will be able to uh, give add wealth uh, for the farmer. So we help them build wealth, and that's the purpose of the co-op is to help the farmer both succeed in their in their operations, but to also create wealth and manage wealth for their for their themselves and their family uh, long term. And so that is uh, that that is the ultimate goal in that. And so uh, uh, yeah, so there, the opportunities there to invest will be there, but understand that for members of the cooperative, they will be automatically uh, invested uh, in these projects and will derive. Uh, derived dividend, uh, you know, from from that. Uh, okay, do we have one more? So I guess we'll see the question. Whether you're talking about contamination of soils. Uh, yeah, so there is a way, uh, and this is something that we're uh, structuring a research project around of how we might phytoremediate soils and then be able to remove, uh, con, you know, the contaminants from from the hemp uh, plant itself and process that into fuel. And uh, we're told that yes, that 
that can be done. Uh, thinking it back as back as back as far as 1986 during the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in the former Soviet Union in Ukraine, uh, they planted hemp to uh, remediate the soil uh, of radioactive material. Uh, and there's some research out there on that, but that is something that we're looking at as a cooperative of how we can uh, build a market around phytoremediation. Now for a farmer, uh, let's say you're a corn farmer and you're putting phosphate fertilizer into the soil. And this is something I, I have learned over just the last couple of months. Uh, that increases the amount of cadmium in in the soil which is not a good thing uh, that's a heavy metal it's very very dangerous uh, and so what we would hope is that even on marginal land or on non uh, hemp farms that the farmer there could use hemp as a rotational crop uh, that they could still derive revenue from and uh, and and help remediate their soil and remove these toxins from their from their farmland. And so that enables them to boost yields of their corn or soybean or whatever that is, but also uh, remove those dangerous materials from the soil. So that's something, yeah, that we would look at as, as a complement to what we're doing is uh, re remove or phytoremediate the soil and then take, the, uh, take that hemp material and uh, obviously isolate and remove those heavy metals and, and toxins and process those out uh, in a safe way and, and still be able to create a fuel product. And we're told that, yes, we, we, we can do that. And so we're, we're looking at how do we kind of meld those, mesh those two things together uh, within the co-op so that we help, again, help the farmer uh, and, uh, and then keep improving our, and, and improve our soils in the process. Okay, any other questions? Okay, well, we, okay, have you spoken to the U.S. military about providing SPK jet fuel blends? Uh, not yet, but, but that is something that, uh, that we will explore when the time comes, yes. So there is the potential to supply the military uh, with biofuel. As we know, the Navy, uh, and the Air Force both uh, are, are using uh, biofuels. And I have been involved in some projects in the past that looked at testing uh, alternative fuels for the military uh, to create even a single source fuel. Uh, that, that's a, a potential. But yeah, so we, we will, when the time comes, we will, we will look at that and, and explore how we contract potentially uh, as a vendor uh, for the military on, on their jet fuel requirements or their naval fuel requirements. Okay, I don't think we have any other questions. If you do, just feel free to reach out to me. My email is roger.ford at nationalhempcoop.us. Uh, that, that's probably the easiest email to get me at. Uh, and if you have any questions and follow-up, feel free to reach out to me, and I'll try my best to get those answered. Again, be sure to tune in next week uh, on Wednesday at the same time uh, for our next week weekly uh, Wednesday webinar. And uh, again, thank you uh, for attending today and have a great day. Thank you.
This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.